It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we begin, a warning. Today's episode contains graphic descriptions of violence and references to suicide. Back in the late 1990s, in the northwest of England, two apparently ordinary couples, with decades of peaceful connubial coexistence between them, were each found dead in their marital beds. At a surface level, they look like murder-suicides, but if you probe slightly deeper into the evidence, it's like Swiss cheese, it's full of holes. These cases are part of a new book by my colleague David Collins at the Sunday Times. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from the Times and the Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, The Hunt for the Silver Killer, Part 2, New Blood. In part one, we heard how two elderly couples in Wilmslow, one in 1996 and the other three years later, were found dead in their bedrooms in apparent murder-suicides. Police suspected the husbands had violently killed their wives for some unknowable reason and then proceeded to take their own lives. That was, and still is, the official verdict on the deaths of Howard and B. Ainsworth and Donald and Oriel Ward. Back in 1999, Christine Hurst, who worked in the coroner's office, was not convinced by this official verdict, and said so. But despite raising her concerns, there was little progress. Soon, Christine had a new deputy, Stephanie Davis. And one day in 2013, Christine decided to show Stephanie the old files. The first case that Stephanie looked at was the Ainsworth's case. So she flicked through, she had a quick look, and her first opinion, her first thought that she said was, these don't look right. They don't look right. Mm. Howard's body looks arranged. And the interesting thing about Stephanie was that she was an expert in blood splatter analysis. So... Blood splatter analysis was a technique that wasn't really available in the 90s when these cases happened. Now, to modern crime scene investigators, are really useful because you can tell where offenders were standing when they struck the blow. All these different really useful clues. 
she looks at this, and that's one of the reasons why she says, you know what, I think Christine's right. But the thing is, the case has been dismissed, so what's she actually going to do about it? About 12 months after she sees those files, Christine Hurst retires from Cheshire Police, and into her shoes came Stephanie Davis. She became the senior coroner's officer for Cheshire. And she decided to do a review of those cases, the Ainsworths and Awards cases. And she sits down and she goes, she starts to go through the entire thing from the very beginning, the witness statements, mm. the pathology reports, the scenes of crime officers reports, everything that goes into a police investigation. She basically begins from day one. And she does something else, doesn't she? She was so kind of convinced by the evidence that actually there is a serious problem here. The police have got this wrong. She decided to get an idea for the person who might have done this. In her view, somebody who carries out acts of violence upon elderly people in their home. She looked for any other cases of murder-suicide in the country to see if there was a pattern. And this is something that does go on behind the scenes at police forces, and it's looking for trends of crime. And the idea of that is basically to stop another Yorkshire Ripper from happening, or at least to to identify patterns of behaviour quicker. And she found 39 murder-suicides across the UK. 39 had happened between 2000 and 2019. Mm. of elderly couples. So these are incredibly rare events. Right. But what she found was out of that 39, there were only three cases that involved blunt force trauma and sharp force trauma, which match the Wilmslow cases. Two of those three happened a few miles down the road in South Manchester, one in Didsbury, one in Davy Hume. Wow. And the third happened in Kendall in Cumbria. So they're all the northwest and they're mostly in the area around Manchester. That's right. So they're all the northwest and a tight geographical area of North Cheshire and South Manchester accounts for four of them. That is that's really amazing, isn't it? I mean that's really quite extraordinary because if this were just a kind of random thing, then in that case you'd expect to find one in Cornwall, one in Norfolk, one in London, and that's not what she gets. Exactly right. I mean, it is an extraordinary finding, isn't it, by any means. Immediately, she writes a report for the major incident team and she includes the three extra cases. But she really does it as a kind of, look, I've not got access to the the coroner's files for these cases. So she's really going off public information and... Uh, she does have a contact at the South Manchester Coroner's Office who gives her more information. I've got real concerns over the Wilmslow killings. And as a result, you may want to look at these cases too. So that's how she frames it. So she's got a report and that's actually in some ways quite embarrassing for the police looked at in in one way. And here comes another funny thing, which is it somehow 
comes to us at the Times, doesn't it? So in the course of Stephanie writing her report, she gives an initial draft of that report to an officer with the major incident team. She feels like that report is kind of put into a drawer. It's not a priority, as cold cases tend not to be. But because she feels like the police aren't taking it seriously enough, she decides to get external expert advice. So she contacts a number of people, and it is through that process of sharing her report with external experts that (laughs) the Sunday Times managed to get a copy. After the publication of her report in the Sunday Times, the police agreed to conduct a review of the cases. What they agreed to do was read her report and compare it to the findings at the time. So it was a kind of paper exercise. The second thing they decided to do was investigate Stephanie herself. They wanted to know how the Sunday Times had essentially got the report. If she had leaked it, they wanted to know the full circumstances of of what had been leaked. So they carried out a separate investigation and that was done by their, their internal professional standards team. Basically the equivalent of, of AC12 in, in line of duty, which is like the worst, the worst nightmare of every cop is to get a call from the professional standards of your internal police force. So that was a that was a separate investigation by them and it was into Steph herself. So she became the focus of an investigation. Very quickly, they realised that Stephanie had not leaked the report to the Sunday Times, but they were not happy with her going to external experts for a second opinion. So they started to investigate for data protection breaches and misconduct in a public office because she shared what they said was sensitive police information with people outside of Cheshire Police. We asked Cheshire Police about this and they told us an internal investigation is ongoing into how this document was released into the public domain and added it would not be appropriate to comment further. One of the experts that Stephanie so controversially contacted was Steve Chancellor. An American forensic and crime investigator, Steve has advised many law enforcement professionals, the FBI among them. In early 2019, Stephanie would meet him. And now I've also spoken to him. And in fact, this is Steve's first time on a podcast. My name's uh, Steve Chancellor. I'm uh, talking to you from my house here in uh, North Carolina in the United States. It's early spring, rained a couple days ago. It's really nice. Steve, could you just tell us what your job is? Yeah, right now I am a uh, supervisory special agent with the United States Army Criminal Investigation Command here at uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And you also have your own company with which you use for consultation. Now, Steve, How do you actually become an expert in forensics? What would I have to do to be you? I've actually been doing this job in investigations or law enforcement for about 49 years. (laughs) 
So I've done uh, about 34 of it now with the uh, with the Army CID, either as a active duty Army or uh, now as a civilian. Um, and when I retired initially from the Army, I went to work for a for a state crime lab where I processed uh, violent crime scenes across the state of Mississippi. I tended to focus on the death investigations or sex crimes, and that's pretty much was my focus, and that's pretty much what I worked in my later years in the uh, in the Army. So you've had to look at some pretty grim things in your time. Uh, yeah. One of the things that is concerned in in this case that we're discussing is the concept of a faked murder scene. Could you explain to me, and I swear I've never heard of this before, what a faked murder scene is? Yeah, uh, we actually use the term uh, staged crime scene or crime scene staging. The best example is a husband and wife are in a domestic dispute. Husband kills wife. Well, he can't report to the police that he killed his wife, so he rearranges the scene to make it look like something else happened, like she fell down the stairs. If she falls down the stairs, then that would explain any any injuries that she may have suffered during that domestic event. And the thought process is the police will come in, they will they will look at the scene, they will accept that it's an accidental death, and there'll be no investigation. Right. So actually, it is a straightforward attempt to try and manipulate the crime scene so as to direct blame away from the actual culprit. Now, when did you first hear about these Cheshire killings? Through uh, email correspondence with uh, Miss Davies. And she was asking, you know, some questions about, about crime scene staging. And she mentioned that you know, she was going to use this information because she had these cases that she was concerned about. After exchanging several emails back and forth, I invited her to attend one of our uh, training classes. We had a training class that was uh, scheduled in the Salt Lake City, Utah area, and she showed up. <laughs> she, she actually took a plane from the UK, and then we had a chance to kind of meet in person, and we discussed the case. Okay, let's go through that now. So could you tell us what it is she showed you, what you saw, and what you found non-credible about it? She had a little uh, kind of a booklet uh, put together that had some police reports and some of the scene photography. One of our big things we always ask is, you know, tell me about your victims. We want to do a, a victimology, which is basically the, the general background about uh, the victims themselves. And that, that tells us an awful lot. In the course of my career, we've seen a lot of strange cases and, and, and strange suicides. I can accept that strange things happen during these incidences. But what was really surprising is, is that, that how similar we're seeing commonalities in both. And that's what was the most troubling to me. So this almost looked as if the same intelligence had somehow or other been involved in both. Yeah, I don't even know what the odds would be to have these two events take place three miles apart and them not be related or linked together somehow. And what specifically about the two cases suggested to you that they were linked? In each event, these are elderly couples. All of them are dressed uh, for bed. I mean, in, in pajamas or a sleeping shirt. The event takes place in the marital bed. There was no blood on Mr. Ainsworth, which would be consistent or expected with that blunt force trauma. 
There was no history of violence with either couple. In both cases, there was no effort to say goodbye to their, uh, to their children. Both of the nightshirts of uh, the ladies were pulled up uh, almost in the same position. Both of the females uh, had uh, blunt force trauma and then had sharp force injuries. Um, Mrs. Ainsworth had the knife uh, through her forehead. Uh, Mrs. Ward had stab wounds to the throat and then incised wounds across the throat. To me, it appears that there was a lot of anger. It actually appears, certainly based on the Ainsworth, that, that the target of the, the offender was Mrs. Ainsworth rather than Mr. Ainsworth because mm. he's almost untouched. So that's so that, that's a whole lot of factors right. which are highly highly suggestive, right. which led you to think there was a strong possibility right. that these that these cases were linked and that they weren't actually murder suicides. Now, in that case, they would be what you call a crime scene staging, or what other people, some people call a fake murder scene. Right. Now, do we have any idea what proportion of crimes of murder in the US or over here in the UK, you may not know that one, are staged. Yeah, there, there was actually a, a pretty good study uh, a number of years ago made by uh, uh, Dr. Schlesinger. And he looked at a, um, a study using 946 homicide cases that he actually got from the FBI. So uh, the FBI gave him these cases. He went through it. He found that out of the 946, that 79 had been staged, which is about 8.35%. That's really the only only uh, study of this size that has been completed. In the U.S., uh, for 2019, if you think about it, we had 16,000, um, I think, 400 and some homicides. If you apply the 8%, almost 1,400 homicides that would have been staged, just if, just if we use that figure. So for the UK, you take the number of homicides and multiply it by 8.35, and you'll, you'll see the number that's likely to be staged. It will surprise you. Your belief would be that staging crime scenes would be pretty much as likely in the UK as in the US. Yes. You know, and as a matter of fact, you know, we, we wrote a book on crime scene staging and actually we used several cases from the UK. And, and we found the cases that were described in the UK match exactly with what happened in the United States. Actually, when we teach, we say, you know, it's their first murder, but it's not ours. So, yeah. so we can usually go back and see where they've made, they made the mistakes. And for staging, what we discovered in our research and personal experience is there are common mistakes that are made all the time. And it's the same common mistakes over and over and over again. You know, when we teach uh, the subject, we say, look, look for these uh, red flags. And these are the common things that, uh, that happen. Steve Chancellor is a fascinating man. In his view, he could not understand Cheshire Police's position. He couldn't believe they'd determined them to be murder-suicides based on the evidence that he'd seen. He saw so many problems with it and flaws, many of which Stephanie and Christine before her had identified. And this was just the next person along the chain that was completely baffled.
Hello, I'm Jane Mulcarens, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. writing the book, what do you feel you learned about past policing practice in this country? I think the biggest thing that strikes me is how arbitrary decisions can be made by detectives and police officers who arrive at a scene. Because what happens in this country is, in cases of suicide, they have to be attended by inspector level and above. And basically, that one person's opinion at a crime scene can completely change the way in which something is investigated. So if that inspector looks at a a hanging, for example, and decides there's no foul play here, then that's the route that investigation will take. But if he turns up and looks at it and says, "Mm, actually, there might be evidence of third party here, then that becomes a completely other type of investigation. You know, going back to the 90s, what I found, especially in 1996, not a great deal had changed in policing and how we do detective work since the Victorian times even. Certainly in terms of note-taking and the way in which investigation teams are organised, it's nothing like modern-day forces where everything has to be accounted for. There's an audit trail. So much changed from the 90s going into the 2000s, Mm. that basically the entire overhaul of policing and detective work happened kind of post-Stephen Lawrence. And then also at the same time, we had this other equally powerful force of forensics, which was coming to meet all those reforms with the Stephen Lawrence reviews, which was just completely radicalised from 2000s onwards, how crime is investigated. 1999, changes are being made. It's getting better. But certainly in 1996, I can see how, at a surface level, they look like murder-suicides. But if you probe slightly deeper into the evidence, it's like Swiss cheese. It's, It's full of holes. Right. And what about the coronial process? Is there room for improvement there? The coronial process came into being to act as a safeguard for the community because the government recognised that it is in the public interest to investigate how people die after the Harold Shipman inquiry happened where the government wanted to look at how did this doctor, this serial killer, get away with murdering so many of his patients And the reason was there were huge gaps in the coronial system which allowed him to do that because he was a doctor signing off his own cause of death. But what they rely on heavily 
especially in cases of suspicious death, is police reports. And although inquests call their own witnesses and they take lots of other expert testimony into account, the determination and the investigation and the narrative put forward by the police is a powerful part of, of an inquest. And yeah. unless you have a really robust team of coroner's officers who are fully trained to identify any potential flaws, then mistakes can happen. And right. I think in their view, and after you know looking at this for some time, in my view, there are huge problems with the Wilmslow killings. Given everything you've discovered and what you've looked at, is it your view that there was and maybe still a serial killer on the loose in the northwest of England? On the balance of, of the evidence that I've seen, I think it is far more likely that there is a killer who took the lives of Howard and B. Ainsworth and Donald and Oriel Ward and that two men have been wrongly accused by history of murdering their wives when the evidence points to a completely different answer. And do you think you have any idea of who such a killer would be? There is a suspect that the police are aware of. Uh, be really careful here. There is, there is a suspect that the police are aware of. Whether or not that suspect will ever be properly investigated is another matter. During the making of this podcast, we approached Cheshire Police. They told us they became aware of a report that called into question the findings of detectives in relation to a number of historic homicide cases in Cheshire, Manchester and Cumbria. They say the contents of this document established no information that would undermine the original findings and that they've maintained close contact with the families involved during this process and their thoughts remain with them. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, David Collins, the northern editor of The Sunday Times. And you can find a link to David's new book, Hunt for the Silver Killer, in the description notes of this podcast. The producers were Oliver Adamson and Will Rowe. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. And if you enjoyed what you've just heard, leave us a review and a five-star rating, please. It helps others find the podcast.